0: Anyways, uh today I wanted to speak about a few uh heart issues that plague the believers' lives in our day. Uh this situation is not uh unique to us. This isn't the first time it's happened and certainly it's it's probably happened in every age and season of the church for the last 2000 years. But I wanted to talk about being rooted and grounded in the gospel versus uh, looking to other places for satisfaction in life, when we come to the Lord, we um, initially we, we recognize our sin and we hear about what Christ has done. Uh, a preacher or, or a group of people or a Bible study leader uh, teaches us what Christ did on the cross through the Word of God, and by that we hear an invitation to receive the Gospel and to accept Christ's work on our behalf, and then everything's great, right? For the first few weeks or, well, maybe not, but we, we begin to walk with the Lord, right? And very often, we can end up in situations where we forget the Gospel. Indeed, I would say that you forget the Gospel all the time. Uh, one of the books that I had um, recommended, I recommended a book to my dad called uh Note to Self by a theologian in Illinois named John Th- or Joe Thorne he's a pastor there and have you ever had this happen to you when you uh, recommend a book to somebody and they read it and then they think you're a genius because they love that book so much like i didn't even really like Note to Self as much as my dad and he's you know he's crazy about that book it it ended up being on the the church's foundational reading list but Note to Self is just a daily devotional that teaches you how to remind yourself about the gospel. And what I think is so helpful about that book is it really presents the gospel to every area of our life. Humility, how we treat our families, how we worship throughout the week, how we work, how we do everything, how we teach our children, raise our children, you know, anything in life, that book is designed to kind of at least address the, the ballpark of those issues. And so in that book, he says, I believe that you forget the gospel many times every single day. And I think he's right. The reason I think he's right is because there are internal heart motivations which God wishes to reform and change in us so that we would look to no other source of satisfaction in our life other than Christ. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, you know, our world in, in today's consumeristic advertising driven culture, we are constantly bombarded with appeals to try this new diet or that new food or that new group or join this cause or donate to the relief effort or get involved reforming something or yourself or whatever. And all of these things are are contending gods that attempt to persuade you that if you only had me, you would be satisfied. Yet the Christian is called to be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone is sufficient in calming all of our anxieties. So we should look for no other. And so today we're gonna to examine how Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, dealt with a very similar situation in Colossians, uh, at, or at the church in Colossae. This church, this region of, of Christianity, had, um, had some, some struggles, and those struggles, I think, are exactly like the ones we have today. That is, we're being persuaded to, to go after someone other than Christ. So with that in mind, we're going to look at these uh, eight things. You know, if I was a better preacher, that would have been seven. Um, I'm kidding. We're going to look at Paul's struggle. He explains, he, he begins this chapter saying, I, I've i got a concern for you, church at Colossae. I'm struggling. There are issues here, and I want to work on them. We're going to look at how that affects our walk in Christ, what what it means to walk in Christ, and and what what it means to put our faith in Jesus. We're going to look at Paul's warning that he gave that church about deception. That is, Paul makes a, a warning and says, "Hey, it's possible." You know, wh- why why do you warn people, right? You, you know, if I if I see someone driving down the the road and they don't have a seatbelt on, I usually get a little ticked because I've seen the Wikipedia articles where they show. The number of deaths per year in the United States before the seatbelt law and then after the seatbelt law. And I'm like warning this guy because there's a real possibility that we can get in an accident and you'll go through the windshield. So you warn people because there's a real danger. This warning that Paul makes in this chapter, which Larry just read for us, he makes this warning because it's possible. It's possible to be led astray from Christ. Now I I'm not you know whatever your soteriology or or theology of salvation is whether you know the the uh eternal security of of a believer I believe in that but but I just want to say it is possible to be majorly sidelined and uh taken out of the game if you will by falling into deception in this area. After Paul gives a warning of deception he then t- speaks about The believer's union with Christ, and we're going to see how that shows up in the language of the Scriptures. One of my primary goals every time I teach is to teach people how to read the Bible. Now, that may seem silly, you know. If if you're uh, a believer who's been with the Lord for any length of time, I know how to read the Bible. You just, you know, you get a plan and you get your calendar and you get a ruler. Or a system of notes, or perhaps you highlight your Bible. You know, I, I, I know how to read my Bible. Well, reading the Bible is not about, you know, particularly just sitting there and doing it. It's about digging and unweaving and taking apart and putting back together in such a way that you glean meaning from the words. So we're going to look at how Paul weaves through this chapter an idea that is called by some the union with our union with Christ. We're going to look at three aspects of Jesus' life his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. And then finally, what it means to come to the end of ourselves and to place our hope in Jesus and to rest in Christ. So with that, uh, Paul begins to address the Colossian church in the first few verses, and he says, I've got a struggle for you. Now, the struggle that Paul was referring to is that a uh, doctrine of teaching called Gnosticism was beginning to enter into this geographic region, there were evil men persuaded by Satan to come up with new uh, teachings other than Christ, new philosophies of the world, philosophies of reality, opinions about how the world works and how we should live our lives as humans, and they were beginning to attempt to invade the church. Now, these people uh, are called Gnostics, and they, you know, they teach Gnosticism. Um, one of the things that Gnosticism entails is is what Paul literally says in those in those verses. Elementary principles. They have this idea, and we're not going to get into it fully. But the Gnostics believe that God, the Father, is you know the the supreme God or a sovereign deity, and then there's this other guy called a demiurge, and he is the one who's evil, and it's kind of this yin yin yang thing, although they don't clarify it that much. And then the demiurge is the one who created the physical world. And so they believe basically that the, the spiritual realm is great and the physical realm is you know pointless, it's worthless, it's terrible. In fact, it's evil. And so they begin to say, well, you know, God, Jesus, you know, wasn't really uh, God, but rather that, you know, he was a human and Godness came on him. And you know these heresies—they kind of interweave with others. But basically, the Gnostic teachers had a few different uh, things that they advocated. They advocated these elemental spirits of the world. Who's ever seen uh, the the show Captain Planet? Come on, Captain Planet. It was a cartoon when I was on, uh, or when I was younger. And they had this—they had a personification of what the Gnostics called Gaia, which is the spirit of the earth. And, uh, and do you guys remember that? If you saw Captain Planet, you remember Gaia. That's that comes straight from Gnostic teaching, which influenced other, you know, Zoroastrianism and all these things. But basically, they believed that the Earth itself had a, a spiritual being, either a goddess or a demoness or whatever, and her name was Gaia, and she gave life to every living thing and things like, or at least the plants and the animals. And this is just nonsense. But the Gnostics are coming in and they're they're starting to persuade Christians. Uh, to go away from christ and to to learn about these things, they also advocated because they believed that the physical world was bad they They advocated the shunning of the body they would uh, attempt to break down the body by fasting and then you know eating certain foods and eating other foods and um, extreme dieting things like that, and then they also exalted the spiritual realm uh, and to the neglect of of moral living in the body. They basically would say, it doesn't matter what you do with your body because it just matters if you're pure in spirit, which of course is foolishness. So these Gnostic teachers had come in and they they had said, well, you should eat these foods and not eat other foods, and you should abstain from you know sexual relations with your spouse, but you should also come to these other events where we're going to do these rituals, and I mean, it's just terrible, evil stuff, but this stuff is beginning to invade the church, or at least attempting to. So Paul says, I'm contending for you and praying that you would not be led astray, but rather that you would be filled with the the fullness of wisdom about God's mystery, the mystery of Christ. See, Gnosticism was basically, we have these secret teachings that when you're enlightened, you will understand and receive for yourself. But until then, you just kind of have to take it from us. Whereas Paul and all the other apostles presented the same gospel, spoke openly the things that Jesus himself had taught openly in, in in the four gospels during his time on the earth. And there's basically this contending going on. Well, you know, I know about Christ, I, you know, a believer in Coloss, I might say, but I hear about this other thing called Gnosticism. That's new, and that that seems fresh. It seems, you know, maybe I should check it out. So Paul is is warring in the spirit against these people. He's praying, and he's saying, I'm contending for you, and I've got a great concern that this stuff is coming after you, and you need to be prepared. So Paul absolutely blasts these teachers out of the water Teaching that Christ Himself is the only mystery of God, he says in in verse two at the end. He says, "I want you to reach all the knowledges of uh, all the knowledge of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." Paul says there is no other secret knowledge. There is no nothing that's hidden that's gonna be revealed other than what has been revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so because he believes that that's already been, uh, already taken place through the person and the work, he then spends the rest of the chapter explaining how uh, that mystery has been revealed through what Jesus did in his body on the earth. Now again, this all appeals to us because today, we're, maybe we're not you know, being affected by Gnostic teachers, but it's the same idea. You know We might not be uh, being told about Gaia, but the idea that we should go astray and find something other to satisfy the concerns of our heart, the concerns of our life, that is the same root principle, which is why we're examining it again today. So Paul instructs these believers to walk in Christ in the same manner that they receive Christ. Okay, great, Paul. That sounds like a wonderful idea. I'm going to walk in Christ in the same way that I receive Christ. Okay, great conference is over, go home, wait a minute, how did you receive Christ, right? How did you receive Christ? Well, you received Christ in in one way. First, you're rooted in him, and Paul says, I'm praying that you would be rooted and built up and established. So it's not just, you know, you receive Christ and then no maturity needed. Not at all, Paul says. He says, I want you to be rooted, built up, and firmly established. I want growth to take place in your life in such a way that you would be uh, coming to the fullness of understanding of of God's mystery. So how did you receive Christ? Well, you heard the gospel and responded with faith. There's two two elements there. You heard the gospel, you responded with faith. How did you hear the gospel? Well, what is the gospel is maybe a better question. You can hear that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You can go up to someone on the street, maybe, if, if you're wanting to do some witnessing. And when you say, Jesus Christ died for your sins, they're then going to look at you and say, yeah, great. Okay, well, I assume if you're, you know, you know, if you said, yes, Jesus Christ died for your sins, oh, you're probably a believer. Foolishness. Everyone in our country knows that Jesus Christ died on a cross. Pretty much everyone. There are people, immigrants, who haven't heard. But what they don't know is the backstory to why did Jesus die on the cross. So put simply, the gospel is good news. It's glad tidings. Well, how is it good news if you just grew up in America, you don't have any concern about sin or righteousness, and you hear that Jesus died on the cross, someone comes up to you in the name of evangelizing you and says, did you know who Jesus was and and that he died on the cross? You say yes. And then the meeting's over. That's not at all the goal here. The goal of hearing the gospel is to be convinced of your need to hear the gospel. And so there's a notion of glad tidings. We we uh, we say the word gospel so often, we forget its meaning. Uh, it comes from the German. It means good spell or or good news. That is, you're telling me something good. And so I like to use the phrase glad tidings. I think it's It's you know it's not you don't have to relegate glad tidings to Christmas. Um, So the gospel is the glad tidings that God has redeemed the world by sending His Son in the flesh to make atonement for sinful humanity. That is the gospel, and through that you respond in faith. Well, how do you respond in faith? You don't respond in faith on your own because the Bible teaches you that you're dead. Can dead people take action? You know, I mean, if you, if you you know, a guy's dead on the ground next to you, you tell him, hey, if you would just get up and go to the hospital, it's just, it's just a block away, you can, the de- he's dead. You're dead in your sins and trespasses when you hear the gospel. And so how is it that you respond in faith? You can't respond at all. Well, you respond in faith because God the Holy Spirit quickens your dead soul to hear and believe the words of Christ and to place your trust in him. Okay? It's not just, I intellectually agree with the gospel. Uh, you can think about it like this. If you're falling off a cliff, you're, you're hiking, you slip, you fall down a mountain, you're falling off a cliff, and you see a branch. Now, you see that branch and you consider, that branch is probably going to be okay to save me. It looks sturdy enough. That branch has probably been growing for 25 to 30 years. Seems Trustworthy that is not going to prevent you from falling the ground and, you know, making a wily coyote kind of splat when you hit the bottom. What will prevent you from falling is when you reach out and grab hold of the branch. And that's what we mean when we say trusting Christ, resting in Christ. So we're supposed to walk in Christ in the same manner that we received him. Therefore, every day we must strive to remember that God is for us and that he is not against us. And then it's not about our own self-effort. The idea is sometimes we come to Christ and then we go about our lives and we begin to enter a phase of performance before God. We, we start to believe that it matters more about what I do and what I serve and how, I, how often I give and how much I give and you know, how much I sacrifice. And that will make God favorable to me. That's not the case, ever. We never, never, never graduate from our need for Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. And because these, these issues affect our heart, we can actually be, begin to believe that, you know, okay, Christ, you know, I, he died on the cross and I'm saved. And then we, in our heart, we revert to performance-minded living, performance-minded operations. So Paul sees this propensity for the church, and he provides them a warning of deception. He says, it's possible. He says he that uh, there are these people who are coming into the church, they're attempting to infiltrate, and they're preaching a false wisdom that is not according to Christ. And so Paul says that they should be on guard against anything that would proclaim another way of satisfaction. Anything. Remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, I talked about how our advertising culture attempts to get you to place your joy in anything else. And I I brought up that billboard, if you remember, Coke is happiness. (laughs) Not cocaine, but I'm sure the cocaine dealers say that. But Coca-Cola is happiness. Nonsense, Christ alone is happiness. In his presence is the fullness of joy, not Coke. In Coke's presence is happiness, what a joke. But, but this is what happens in our culture. Everything is constantly calling out to you. The magazines with the, the trim cut figures, they're saying your body is not worth it. Your body is not good. McDonald's, Coca-Cola, come here, get happy. Everything's good. Our entire culture is directed at aiming towards your affections for material goods, your position in life, the way that you look, and what you do with your time whether it's being, you know, feeling good about yourself because you've gone green and you've reduced your carbon footprint, whatever that means. Now, I'm not, you know, don't go out and spill toxic waste in the water, but pe- many people are looking for things to satisfy their internal heart motivations. So Paul warns them, and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, what I, what I want to hammer home is Paul is warning against actual heresy, okay? He's warning against, uh, he's warning the Colossians that there are some teachers who are coming after you, and they're attempting to persuade you to believe another gospel or to turn away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. But there are not, uh, there, there are other heresies that aren't just, you know, di- dogmatic theoretical heresies, there are functional heresies. And that's what I'm trying to get at, is what is your primary motivation in life, and what is the thing that provides the most satisfaction? If you can honestly say the thing that you need the most, if you can identify that, then you will discover your functional God. So how do we keep ourselves from this deception? Well, Paul says that you need to come to this knowledge. And he he teaches that you should fortify your mind with truth. So we're going to fortify our mind with truth and have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is what Paul's uh, attempt is. He begins to smash these Gnostic teachings by teaching what Christ accomplished in the flesh. And so Paul argues in this chapter for the sufficiency of Christ. It's no longer just, you know, uh, good enough that Paul knows about Christ, but he wants to begin to explain to the church at Colossae, here are the things that Christ accomplished in the body, and here's why Christ is sufficient. We're about to look at three things that Christ did in his life, his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection, which uh, teach us what God has already done in the gospel. But before we look at those, those uh, elements, uh, I want to indicate how God has done this through the work of Christ. Many times we hear the gospel and we hear Christ died for my sins. Okay, great. But what is sometimes neglected is the fact that the Trinity operates in a unity. And not only has Jesus accomplished these things for you, but God the Father was creating and shifting and making transactions in them and through them, by the way of his perspective of you being united with Christ, okay there's this idea that the believer for for one who is a true believer who has who has set apart his life uh, to love and serve the Lord, someone who's heard the gospel, responded in faith the the Bible calls that person someone who 's united with Christ that is you 're in Christ or you 're with Christ now because of this Paul uses particular, type of, particular types of linguistic devices to hammer this point home. This was what I was talking about earlier. I want to train, every time I teach, I want to train how to read the scriptures. I want you to notice two things in these next three sections that Paul uses in the literature. He uses past tense verbs which emphasize completeness or the fact that something is already done. Okay? Past tense verbs, sounding more and more like a grammar school. And then prepositional phrases, so past tense verbs, things that are done, doneness or completeness, and then prepositional phrases, the two phrases that are most important are in him and with him. Okay? These teach us about our union with Christ. So in the incarnation, Jesus, uh, God the Son, takes on human flesh. And he steps into human history and dwells in, uh, in a physical body. He, he, he takes on human form. And so this absolutely smashes this Gnostic teaching that the spiritual realm is good and the physical realm is evil. Because God the, God the Son steps into time and into space, takes on uh, a human form, material form, and walks among, uh, among us. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, it says, For in him, that's speaking about Jesus, the fullness of de- of deity dwells bodily. Now, that's kind of a confusing sentence. I like the way another translation says, The fullness dwells in Christ in bodily form. That is, in Jesus, in his body, the Godhead, that is, God himself, dwelled. Now, we know that God is infinite and uh, cannot be contained by anything. And so Paul is saying, don't don't go off into these other teachings. There are beautiful, wonderful mysteries to revel in. How does an infinitely large God, an infinitely powerful God, place himself into a human body? It's it's impossible to understand. And then here's the connecting verse. And you have been filled in him. So the the Godhead takes residence in Jesus through his, his entrance into humanity. It's hard to even talk about these things without tiptoeing around doctrinal error. And, and the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. And because we're in Christ, Paul says, you have been filled in him. Filled with what? Well, it's clear. God, you've been filled with God. Now, I'm not saying that you are God, Okay but you've been filled with God. Why is that important? Why does Paul say this? Because we're made in the image of God, we have been created with the capacity to fellowship with God. And through what happened at the fall, we were put at a distance from our maker. And so that image of God was marred, and we were unable to remedy the situation at all. It's kind of like if you lose a loved one, uh, you experience that loss of fellowship, and you can't do anything about it. unless you raise the dead, which would be great. But not only is Christ filled with the fullness of God, but because we are united to Christ, remember, in him, we also have been filled. No longer is our maker at a distance, but through the incarnation and through our uh, transformation that God himself accomplished through the work of the gospel, we have been considered to have been with Christ. And and we are now filled with, With the Holy Spirit as we enter into Christ's body. And so our Maker is no longer at a distance, but now His Spirit resides within us. We've become temples. Through His death, Christ demonstrated a life lived completely in purity before God. Every single day that Christ was walking on the earth, He was demonstrating two things. He was demonstrating the purity of not committing sin, okay? He wasn't actively going about destroying, bringing death into the world, lying, cheating, swindling, etc. So he didn't commit any sins, but he also fulfilled God's law completely. He even taught such that he rebuked the Pharisees who were trying to keep God's law. He told them that you have neglected the weightier provisions. Christ in his life, through his acts of mercy, his acts of service, his healing, his teaching, etc., he not only did not commit sin but he fulfilled god's law by living a life of mercy and and compassion and so when christ dies that you can think of that not just as as making atonement but also the finality of a life lived in righteousness before god something that you and i were totally unable to do and our flesh had become corrupted through the fall and so we were born in sin we were corrupted from the beginning of our life and paul then goes on to say but because you're in christ that old flesh has been cut away and you now can walk in newness this is a little bit confusing if you're um, not extremely familiar with the old testament but in the old testament in the old covenant uh, circumcision was a sign of entrance into the people of god if a male Uh, Was around the nation of Israel and wanted to come and be part of God's community, he wanted to become a worshiper of God, he had to go through a process of circumcision. Now, the circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality that he needed his heart pierced to come before a holy God. And so Paul demonstrates this. He's speaking to a, a group of believers who were both Greeks and Hebrews before they received the gospel, and he says, In Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This has gone from an outward visible symbol to an inward reality. That outward symbol of circumcision just merely pointed forward to the time where your flesh would be cut, as it were, through the waters of baptism. He says, By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, Okay, in in water baptism, in in the transaction that takes place in, through, and above and beneath water baptism, we are united with Christ, and we are buried with him in his death. Now, that's a, a really amazing idea. It's not merely a symbol, but rather it's something more mysterious than that. Now, I'm not saying if you just go around baptizing people, they become converted, okay? But what Paul is teaching here can't be divorced from the physical reality, He's saying that you've been buried with Christ through your baptism. So because we are counted by God as in Christ, we too have put off the body of sin. Now I'm not saying we are now sinless, but before this takes place, our bodies are given over to lustful passions and immoralities, tendencies to indulge in a sinful way. And now that we've been sanctified by God, and we've passed through as it were the cutting waters of baptism we've now been transferred into the people of god and that takes place because we were in christ okay this is all you can think of it like this we hear about the gospel and we see christ on the cross making atonement for us we're told that we can place our trust in christ and we're you know we respond in faith and we're regenerated that's maybe a A human perspective of what's going on Paul is giving the perspective from what's taking place in God's point of view God considered you to be in Christ when Christ was doing that God considered you to be in Christ when he was dying when he was resurrected so we don't have to go around and weaken and kill the body through fasting and various ascetic practices where we try to break down the physical world if you will we can trust that because We have been in Christ through his death. We have died to our former selves. And as we're going to see in the resurrection in a minute, we are going to be raised in in him. We don't need to uh, go around hating our bodies like the culture tries to teach us because through Christ, our bodies have actually become a temple of the Holy Spirit final thing we're going to look at is christ's resurrection through his resurrection christ triumphed over sin and death both the cause and the effect okay god said that uh when you eat of the tree you will surely die satan deceived the people uh, adam and eve and he said you're not going to die but you'll become like god having this knowledge of good and evil it's very similar to the the tendencies that we're talking about today and through their sin Death entered the world. And so Christ comes and he triumphs over death. His victory over death, therefore, symbolizes a redemption of the world from futility and points forward to the life of the next age. When, when sin had entered into the world, all of the creation was subjected to something to take place that had never taken place before, that is the death and going down into the dust. And that was the destination before Christ of every person who ever lived, righteous or not. Now, what Christ does in triumphing over death is not only did he defeat defeat sin on the cross, but he also defeated the consequences of sin. And this is what takes place in the resurrection. He says, you were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive together with him. Okay, When God was raising Christ from the dead, he, Paul says that because you've now come and been united to Christ, God considers you to be uh, with Christ, and so he's made you alive with him at the same time, uh, in the same manner, if you will. Now, when you hear about the appeal, again, of Gnostic teachings or a new diet or a new philosophy, or I just need to read this self-help book or read that business strategy book— You know, those are enticing, but when you look at this chapter, how did God the Father consider someone who was born thousands of years after Christ's uh, work in his life, death, and resurrection, how does God the Father, from an eternal perspective, consider me to be in Christ when these things are taking place? That's an absolute mystery, and it speaks to the undeniable nature of Christianity as a faith which we must receive by grace and cannot fully explain or understand. And so these things that appeal to us week by week, we can smash them if we're filled with the truth. It says that God was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul, The, the, pro, the pronoun there, this he set aside, is connected in verse 13 in the middle to God. So God did the nailing of your sins and trespasses to the cross. It wasn't just Jesus, the son, working on your behalf, but also God himself. So when God raised Christ from the dead, he also makes us alive with Christ. And not only did God undo the consequences of our sin, but he put those transactions on the cross, allowing us to walk in righteousness of life. And so this all of these mysteries that we've explored today bring us to our final point, which is the need for us to place our hope in Christ and to rest in him. Like the Colossians, we uh, desperately lack in our sufficiency of understanding who Christ is and being satisfied. It's not enough to come to some sort of intellectual knowledge about Christ and yet not have anything move in your heart. Paul's teaching here that that these are, are spiritual transactions, these are realities that have already taken place, and our ability to rest in Christ and believe in the gospel is tied to, in, in some way at least, an ability to experience and to feel and to know that those things have taken place for us. We forget the gospel every, every, uh, every day possibly many times a day, and we're constantly striving in our efforts to accomplish just one more thing. How many of you are to-do list makers? I'm a to-do list kind of guy. I think they're great. But it is an error, and it is a tragic error, to begin to relate to the Father on a to-do list system. The gospel comes and declares Christ has checked off your list and has totally paid sufficiently your debts and you are done with lists. You need to simply rest and trust in Christ. And so when we look for another remedy other than Christ, it dishonors God. Why? It dishonors God because it dishonors his prescribed means of salvation and the way that he has already made for you to be reconciled to him. So likewise, uh, we should cut off every avenue of self-help, and an attempt to justify ourselves before God and just again rest in Christ. So with this understanding, really what it means then to believe the gospel is to believe that God is for you and that and have that belief be so strong, such of such a quality, that you resist working on your own to justify yourself before Him. Resting in Christ's work there then is the cessation or the stopping of all self-righteous efforts, the casting of all of our burdens upon him, and the placing of all of our trust on him as well. So we're, we're going to pray and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But my heart's desire for you, for me, is that we would not be persuaded by our culture to go after another source of help other than Christ. Now, I'm not talking about being responsible with school or your work or something like that. I'm talking about who is your functional God? What are you looking to to satisfy those needs, to know that you're justified by God, to know that you've paid, you've had your sins removed from you, to know and to trust that you have a place with the Father? That's, That's what it means to rest in Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you are doing in, in our midst. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to walk out these spiritual realities for us, that he did so in a fleshy human body. Lord, we thank you that you have prevented your church from going into doctrinal error, and we we ask you, Lord, that you would, in our hearts, that you would convince us that we really are with Christ. I pray God for every person in this room who is struggling with an assurance of salvation. I pray that you would shore it up, that you would solidify it, and that they would not trust in the strength of their faith, but in the object of their faith. God, I pray that you would give us great grace these next few weeks and months of our lives to look to Christ and to see that we are with him, that he is not distant but rather that we, in your perspective, are in him. God, I pray that you would supersede all of our attempts to justify ourselves before you, and that you would show us any idols or functional gods that we've made and placed before you. Lord, we ask that you would be the most precious thing in our hearts, and that you would be the satisfaction of all our desires. In Jesus' name, amen.